Amen, amen. Let's show our appreciation for those children's workers. Yeah. And, uh, and thank you, worship team. I like that song. That was awesome. I, uh, I'm making a list, Pastor Rob, of, uh, of songs I want to play to my funeral. I want that song on the list, all right? My funeral is going to be awesome. You're going to want to be there. All right. Well, uh, good morning, church. Good morning, Balcony. Good to see you. If you have a Bible with you, would love for you to open that to Matthew chapter 7, 15 to 20. Uh, as I mentioned last week, we are getting to the end of our rather long, uh, slow journey through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're into the concluding section here. All of verses 13 to 28 are generally considered the, the conclusion, the landing of the Sermon on the Mount. This whole section is application, warning, and appeal. Last week, uh, we heard Jesus talking about the two roads. He said, uh, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now this week, to that kind of picture is is added this idea that as we're walking along the narrow way, as we're trying to make our way from the city of destruction to the celestial city on this, this narrow road, we are likely to encounter two sorts of people. We're going to encounter people who want to help us along the way, and we're going to meet people who want to deceive us into leaving the path and walking the way that leads to destruction. So this is another one of those warning passages. This is an appeal for us to be wise and watchful and alert. Hopefully you have your Bible open now to Matthew 7. I'll be reading from verse 15 through to verse 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In order for us to understand this passage and respond to it the way that I think uh, the Lord intends for us to do, the first question we need to answer, obviously, is this. What is a false prophet? Uh, What exactly are we talking about here? Of course, if you're a Bible reader and you know your Old Testament, uh, then you know there are all kinds of prophets in the Old Testament, aren't there? Uh, there are good prophets, there are bad prophets, and usually you, you kind of have to use the context of the story to figure out who, you, who you're looking at. Is this a, a good prophet or a bad prophet? And uh, of course, there are prophets of Yahweh, uh, prophets of God, but then there are prophets of Baal in the Old Testament stories as well, aren't there? Of course, we, we think of that uh, famous story of the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. But then even among the prophets of Yahweh, we have true prophets and false prophets. If you're an RMM user, we've been reading through the book of Jeremiah for a number of days now. And in the story of Jeremiah, he is constantly uh, having to deal with prophets of Yahweh. They, They claim to be operating within sort of the confines of the Jewish religion but they weren't actually speaking for God. They were kind of filled with a lying spirit. 
And so they were undermining Jeremiah's message. Jeremiah's message was, if we continue down this road, we're going to be punished by God. We're going to experience exile. And the false prophets were saying, no, 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 that would never happen. And they were saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So exactly what kind of prophet are we dealing with here in this story, in this warning from the Sermon on the Mount? D.A. Carson says very helpfully here, within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the false prophet can only be someone who does not advocate the narrow way presented by Jesus. He may not be wildly heretical in other areas. Indeed, he may set himself up as a staunch defender of orthodoxy. But the way which he commends is not narrow or disturbing, and therefore he can gain quite a hearing, close quote. So, to be clear, Richard Dawkins, uh, the, the famous atheist, would not be a, a false prophet in, in this sense. Richard Dawkins is an outright, honestly declared opponent of all forms of Christianity. He's representing a whole other team, and he's very upfront about that. So he's not a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's a wolf in wolf's clothing, right? Totally different thing. What we're talking about here is a person who presents themselves as speaking on behalf of the Lord. We're talking here about a Christian preacher or pastor, person claiming to speak on behalf of Jesus, who is in fact not advocating for the narrow way of Jesus. The false prophet in this sense is, is the one who is advocating for the broad way. This is the person who's saying that, you know, actually, you don't, you don't have to let go of as many things as perhaps you have been told. There's an easier way. There's a less costly, less confining way of following Jesus. That's the sort of false prophet who's in view here. The preacher of easy ways, broad roads, and wide embraces. Many such people have been sent out into the world so as to lure naive and careless pilgrims off the road that leads to life, and onto the way that leads to destruction. So how can we spot these people? That's our, our second question. Look again at verses 16 to 18, very important. Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So obviously, we're supposed to recognize them by their fruits, but what exactly does that mean? Um, one of the conversations that I have on a pretty regular basis with, with pastors, young and old, is this conversation, what exactly is fruit? And we talk a lot about fruit in, in the Christian world. What exactly does that, does that mean? Well, it may be helpful here to sort of dip into other places in the New Testament to get a sense of how this concept was used. Uh, we want to start, of course, with the words of Jesus. Jesus used this metaphor on a pretty regular basis. Just if you're, if you're in Matthew 7, turn maybe two pages to the right, to Matthew 12, verses 33 to 37. Jesus is using the same metaphor here, and uh, here he's using it in the context of a confrontation that he was having with some of the leaders of Judaism, people that he had already labeled as hypocrites. You remember that a hypocrite is somebody who's playing a role. It's literally a, a term borrowed from Greek theater. It means to act. 
means to pretend to be religious when in fact you're not. It means to present yourself as a, as a person of piety when in fact you don't actually really believe the things that you're saying. And Jesus was calling them out on that. So he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Wow, that should be underlined. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So Jesus here is rebuking these, these hypocrites for playing a role. They were trying to present themselves as, as teachers of, of righteousness when in fact their hearts were wicked. And Jesus is saying, that's a fool's errand because eventually who you are will come out of your mouth. And, and so what he's, what he's saying here is that the heart is the root and what comes out of your mouth is the fruit. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So bad teaching, bad teaching ought to be our first clue. If a false prophet is singing a song that does not harmonize with the beautiful tune of the Sermon on the Mount, then your spidey senses ought to be tingling. But I think there's, there's more, obviously, to it than that in terms of how this metaphor is used in the New Testament. Uh, of course, we think famously of how the Metaphor of fruit is used as a description of the expected character of the true believer. We think of that fruit of the Spirit passage. If you've ever been to VBS, then, then you have learned about the fruit of the Spirit, haven't you? It's the curriculum every third year and has been uh, since the apostles walked the earth. Uh, it's good. Galatians 5, Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. All right, so it seems that when we're talking about fruit, we're talking about content, right, what comes out of your mouth, and we're talking about character, what, what lives in your heart. D.A. Carson is helpful here. Again, he says, false prophets can look like real prophets, and even their fruit may appear to be genuine, but the nature of the false prophet cannot be hidden forever. Listen. Sooner or later, he will be seen for what he is. Just as he does not advocate Jesus' narrow way, so also does he fail to live it. This fact must one day be exposed to all who cherish the narrow way. Character will eventually out the false prophet, which is why, by the way, heresy hunting is generally a waste of time. Friends, I would, I would urge that you be watchful and careful about those who spend all day in their basement on the internet uh, sifting through the sermons and writings of other pastors and preachers that they want to out as false prophets. There's no warrant for that kind of obsession in the Bible. In fact, earlier in this chapter, Jesus had been warning people about being judgmental. Do you remember that? He said, Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not that you not be judged. Now, as, as Scott helped us understand when he was leading us through this passage, Jesus here is not uh, outlawing discernment, but he is being critical of that judgmental, condemning spirit that must not be found among the people of God. 
Jesus never commissioned his disciples to be heresy hunters. You know why? Because it's bad for you. Heresy hunting does more damage to your own soul than it, than it does to those that you're trying to bring down. Listen, friends, the devil wins when we ignore false prophets, so let's not do that. But the devil also wins when we obsess over false prophets. So let's not do that either. Instead, we ought to follow the counsel that Jesus gave to his disciples. When they wanted to to go after the Pharisees, Jesus told them, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, then they will fall into a pit. Leave them alone, Jesus says, right? Just mark them, identify them, and move on. If they are really false prophets, then eventually their lives are going to fall apart. And so too will their movements. And that leads us to our third type of fruit. We've talked about content. We've talked about character. We also need to talk about community in in terms of the sort of community that gathers around these sorts of teachers. Charles Spurgeon advocated for that kind of test as well. He said their teaching, that's their content, right? Their living, that's their character, and their effects upon our minds will be a sure test to us. And so we ought to be asking, what is the nature of, of the community? Or what is the character of the church that gathers around a false teacher like this? What's the effect that is produced by prolonged exposure to this kind of teaching? Listen, friends, there, there is a sense in which a pastor's only resume is his congregation, particularly if he's been preaching there for an extended period of time. The Apostle Paul said that in his second letter to the Corinthians. He said, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. So if a church is angry and quarrelsome and and divisive within the, the wider body of Christ, then I would argue it's likely being led by a false prophet. Similarly, if a church becomes progressive to the point where they're leaving behind historical Christian consensus, historical Christian teaching, then I think you'd have to conclude that that church also is being led by a false prophet. Fruit tells the truth. So sometimes you can spot a false prophet right away just by listening to the words that are coming out of his or her mouth. But more often, due to subtlety and deceit, You're going to have to wait until you can observe the rot in his own life, or more tragically, the rot in his own church. But one way or another, the truth will out. You will know them by their fruit. That leads us to our final question. How can we protect ourselves as Christians? Let me suggest three ways we can do that based on how the apostles applied this in their own ministries, in their own congregations. First of all, then, to protect ourselves as Christians, we need to be alert. In Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul met with the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, 
remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That's a pretty incredible thing to say. I wonder how we would react if a pastor tried to pull that off today. Imagine a, a pastor was leaving his, his church. He was going to take another charge. And uh, before he left, he gathered the elders together and he said, now listen, I want to warn you to the very high likelihood that from among your number, from the board, from the men sitting around this table, voices will arise in this church trying to lead it off the path that leads to life and onto the way that leads to destruction. I want you to be on guard against that. I wonder how that would be received. And yet the Apostle Paul had no problem saying that. He, he was alert to the ever-present danger of false prophets working their way into the church. And I think it's long past time for us as evangelicals to recognize this danger in our day as well. It amazes me how many people will still be offended, despite all the evidence, right? How many people will still be offended when you even suggest that there is such a thing as, in essence, false flag operations inside the church. People who present themselves as Christians who are, in fact, not Christians and who, whether they know it or not, are actually working for the other side. I don't know how many of you uh, would remember this, but uh, back in 2013, I stirred up a bit of a hornet's nest, not on purpose. Sometimes I do it on purpose. Sometimes I'm just absolutely ignorant and flabbergasted by the results. But in, back in 2013, I don't know if you remember, but I included a bulletin insert. And on the front of the bulletin insert, I listed six historical teachers that I could recommend to your uh, consideration wholeheartedly without reservation. And then uh, six living pastors, teachers, and authors that I, I thought would be worthy of your time and attention as well. I said, the, you know, these people feed you well right as you're driving to work and you got to listen to something in the car. You can, you can trust these folks. But then on the back of the insert, I took the additional step of listing an, an equal number of, of teachers, writers, and pastors that I recommend that you avoid. Now, nobody was too concerned about the first page, uh, but I got some serious pushback about the second page. Pastor, how, how, how dare you suggest that there are, you know, pastors and teachers out there that, that we need to avoid that are dangerous, that are spurious? I mean, that's kind of rude and judgmental of you to say, isn't it? And listen, on one hand, I, I hear that. You know, we just said Jesus does not want us to have a censorious spirit. He doesn't want us to have a, con, a condemning attitude. Absolutely. But he, he does want us to be discerning. And he does say right here, right here in the text we're looking at, beware of false prophets trying to worm their way into the church, dressed as sheep, wearing sheep's clothing. And, and the apostles apparently understood Jesus to be saying that this is part of the job too because they, they did this with their churches. The apostle Paul, Romans 16, said, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles Contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. Avoid them. That's all we're trying to do with that. Right? We, I, and I went back. Actually, I went back and looked it up. I, couldn't, I remember that people got upset, but I couldn't remember the details. So I found it on my computer, brought it up. Did not use, you know, didn't label anybody a heretic or didn't label anybody a false teacher. Literally, the title just said, wise to avoid or, or some teachers to avoid. That's, that's part of the job. Has been for a real long time. 
We need shepherds, elders, pastors in this church. Part of the job is being alert to dangers coming at your flock from every side. And they are coming at us from every side. You know, for the first 25 years of my ministry, I did all my watching and all my pushing back to, in one direction, in the leftward direction. And of course, that's, that's partly because for most of those 25 years, I was pastoring in the CBOQ, which was undergoing a pretty serious leftward drift. There were a ton of voices in the CBOQ advocating for wider, easier, and broader ways of following Jesus. And we pushed back on that. We pushed back on that as a church for 10 years. But more recently, I found myself having to push back in a rightward direction. There's a whole new right wing in evangelicalism that we need to be very mindful of. Not sure if you know that. We have to be willing to push back in that direction as well. There are people out there who want us to be narrower, harder, less charitable, and less compassionate than Jesus. We need to push back. As soon as you think that all the dangers are coming at you from one direction, you're going to be exposed to dangers coming at you from the backside. you got to be 360 degrees aware nowadays. You've got to be discerning. That leads us to the second thing we need to do to protect ourselves. We need to test everything. Test everything. That was obviously the takeaway of the apostles. The apostle Paul said, test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Apostle John said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out of the world. Doesn't that sound like somebody who listened to the Sermon on the Mount? Got to test everything. So how do we do that? Well, of course, we do that primarily by reading the Bible. We talked a few minutes ago about how one of the ways that you're going to spot a false prophet is by listening to the words that come out of their mouth. But that only works if you know what words are supposed to be coming out of their mouths, right? A real prophet speaks only the word of God. For all his other faults, the prophet Balaam in the book of Numbers understood that very well. When he was urged by the king of Moab to put a curse, to speak a curse over the people of Israel, do you remember what he said? He said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? He says, I can't just make this stuff up, right? I can't just say whatever it is that that comes in my heart. I can't just say whatever it is you'll pay me to say. I can speak only the words that God puts in my mouth. Well, so it is. How about if I use this? Is that good? I'm good still? Oh, problem solved. Hallelujah. Many of you may not know the story of Balaam. It's a useful story. Again, he was asked. He was paid. He was given multiple opportunities to say what the king wanted to hear. And again, he said, must I not take care to speak only the words that the Lord puts in my mouth? It's not the preacher's job to share his own opinions. I've said many times, I, I would not walk across the street to hear Paul Carter's opinions. And I hope that you wouldn't either. 
but I walk a long way in the snow, uphill both ways, just like my dad did on his way to school. Every day, every day, back in the 50s, I would do that again today to hear the word of God read, explained, and applied. Can you say amen to that? Amen. That's the pastor's job, to speak the word of God as contained in Holy Scripture. But here is the issue. Here's the question. How are you going to know that? How are you going to know if that's what you're getting? If you don't read and study the Bible for yourself, you got to read the Bible. And not just the New Testament and Psalms. Remember when we were kids? I don't think they still do this anymore, but remember you used to get the New Testament and Psalms in, in public school? I still have a couple of those. I don't know why I have a couple of them. I probably borrowed one or inherited one from other people. But anyway, I've got multitudes of those, of those things. You remember that? And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, praise God, we got something into the hands of kids. But didn't it almost kind of communicate that these are the good bits of, of the Bible? And it, by and large, evangelicals, you, you, one of the most fun things to do is pick up an evangelical Bible. It's like some, some evangelicals Bible with the gold leaf. You know the gold leaf Bibles? Boy, those look good. You notice that all the gold is off the leaves of the last third of the Bible and then like 38 pages right in the middle and everything else is just doing fine. When we read the Bible like that, we leave ourselves exposed. I've been studying the book of Zechariah for the last four to five months in preparation for an upcoming series on the end of the word. And I have been absolutely astonished by the extent to which the New Testament apostles viewed all the significant events associated with the first and second coming of Jesus through the lens of this obscure book in the Old Testament that no one reads. Did you know that Zechariah 9 through 14 is the most frequently cited portion of Scripture in the passion narrative of Jesus Christ? Did you know that? And then it's all over the last seven chapters of the book of Revelation as well. Because the New Testament apostles interpreted the great events of Jesus' first and second coming largely through the anticipations expressed in Old Testament prophetic works. Books that we never read anymore. So we need to read. We need to read, read, read the Bible. As Pastor Matt mentioned just a few minutes ago, we're going to be studying the book of Zechariah at Cornerstone U this coming September on Sunday nights. You should come because you need to know the Bible so that you can use the Bible to test the things that are being taught to you on Sunday morning. And not just Sunday morning anymore. This is it's a new world, right? One of the things that I've figured out is that when I started pastoring, I was the main voice in the ear of my, most of my people, right? They, I mean, sure, they did some Bible reading during the week, but then, they, you know, we had a sermon on Sunday. We had Bible study midweek at some point. I was the main voice. I'm not even close to being the main voice anymore in the ear of my people. You'll listen to one sermon on Sunday morning, and you'll listen to 10 podcasts between now and next Sunday. I've, I've talked to, to people in, in our church, maybe they're roofers or they're working outside, whatever. They're listening to 25, 30 hours a week of teaching from, from other pastors. That's a whole new world now. How do you know whether that's good content or bad content? Jesus is telling you both kind of preachers, both kind of prophets, both kind of voices have gone out into the world. Those who want to help you and those who want to deceive you off the path and onto the road that leads to destruction. How can you know? There is way too much crazy and way too much outright demonic deception out there in the world and in the church 
for you to be simply trusting that the voice you're hearing in your ear is speaking to you the word of God. You need to verify that. You need to open your Bible and verify that. You need to have your Bible open every time you come into a church. And I would argue every time you listen to something on your radio, unless you're driving, which is probably dangerous, check it when you get home. You need to have your Bible definitely open in front of you when you come into church. I've told you before, if you go to a church and in the first five minutes of the pastor's sermon, he doesn't give you a chapter and a verse to reference, get up out of your seat, walk out the door, and don't come back. You are responsible for the teaching that you sit under. So you need to read, read, read your Bible. You've got to know the beautiful tune so that you can identify and avoid deceitful distortions. And then lastly, in terms of things that we can do to protect ourselves from the influence of false prophets, we can support what is good and starve what is bad. Again, that's part of the advice that the apostles, the very first hearers of the Sermon on the Mount, gave to their congregations. The apostle John said, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. The Apostle John oversaw a network of churches in Asia Minor, uh, at least seven churches that we know of. And it seems that he trained up a number of uh, young men who went out as itinerant preachers under his supervision. These men would go out and preach, preach the circuit, and they would stay in one of the houses of the local elders, which, by the way, is the reason, uh, the reason we believe is behind the, the requirement in the New Testament that elders be able to show hospitality. Our best reconstruction of the context in the, in the first generation is that most local churches would have their own plurality of elders, maybe three or four, maybe in a larger church like the church in Antioch, maybe, maybe six or seven. And they would do much of the teaching in the church, but then a network of churches, maybe seven to 10 churches, would share four or five, six or seven, we don't know how many, but they would share a group of paid itinerant preachers who would serve all the churches collectively here, in this case, trained and supervised by the Apostle John. So here in this epistle, John is saying to these churches, support and send these teachers on in a generous fashion. Feed them well, house them well while they're with you, and then send them out generously and well-equipped so they can take the message, they can take the gospel out to the next town. These are good men, John says, and they're bringing a good message to you. We ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. But then the flip side of that, John says, we must be careful not to support people who've gone ahead of the truth and who do not abide in the teaching of Jesus. He says that in 2 John 1, 9 to 11. He says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. You see in the, the first century system? The first century system is pretty simple. Support the good teachers and starve out the bad. Did you hear about the big coyote problem in Stanley Park? 
couple years ago out in BC. Stanley Park is kind of like the Algonquin Park of BC. Uh, I've, I've been to Stanley Park. My grandparents uh, retired and, and lived in BC. Stanley Park's absolutely beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But they had to shut it down for multiple weeks back in 2021. It, the story was reported in all the major newspapers. There were so many coyote attacks on hikers and cyclists that the Ministry of Natural Resources shut it down and they went in and they had to do a massive cull. Turns out that for years, hikers and visitors to the park had been feeding the coyotes. They'd been bringing in little bags of dog food and leaving them all along the path. But of course, as anyone knows, if you feed the predators, eventually the predators are going to feed on you. And that's what happened. There were 45 reported coyote attacks on children and adults in Stanley Park in the first nine months of 2021. As the Bible says, my friends, you reap what you sow. Literally, in this case. Sow dog food into a park, wreak a coyote attack on your backside, right? And that's exactly what has happened in the evangelical church over the last 40 years. We've been feeding wolves and coyotes. We've been buying their books, supporting their television programs, supporting their churches. They have multiplied. And as a result, it is much more dangerous to walk the narrow way than it was just a generation or two ago. We need to stop. We need to go back to the first century model. We need to support pastors and preachers whose ministry accords with the apostolic gospel And we need to ruthlessly and intentionally starve out those whose ministry does not. Beware of false prophets, brothers and sisters, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Do not feed them, do not follow them, and do not fight them. Rather, mark them, avoid them, and carry on. Oh, God, help. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we need these warnings. These warnings are part of how you keep us on the narrow way. Lord, many of us, I know, we don't love warnings. We love encouragement. We love positive instruction. And yet the scriptures are filled with warnings. And we've just heard one. And Lord, some of us need to change our behaviors. Lord, I don't don't know exactly how you'll press this on on every heart here. Some may need to be more discriminating in what they listen to. Some maybe need to be more disciplined in their Bible readings. Some need the wisdom of staying with the herd and taking some instruction from from older leaders. Lord, what cannot be denied is that this narrow way is now overrun with the false shepherds that we've been feeding and keeping over the last 40 years. And we repent of that. We need your help. Lord, we've made a mess that we can't fix on our own. And so we ask for your help. And we ask for your particular protection as we continue to walk. Lord, I would pray against two possible wrong reactions. I pray against those who will just dismiss this and say, well, that's, you know, that's not me. I, the people I listen to, I'm sure, are fine. I pray against that. I pray for the humility just to do a double check. And then, Lord, I also want to pray against those who are now going to be obsessed, who are going to feel themselves anointed as heresy hunters, and who are going to spend 
inordinate amount of time now on the internet searching out people they think need to be exposed. Lord, that's not the call either. I pray you'd make us wise and watchful, but that you'd keep us moving along this road that leads away from the city of destruction toward the celestial city in hope of our eternal reward. And I pray that now in Jesus' name.